Welcome to Fast Talk Femme, hosted by Julie Young and Dee Dee Barry. Our guest for today's episode is Jennifer Sago. Jen is a dietitian, sports nutritionist, author, and speaker specializing in nutrition prevention and performance. Jen is in her fifth season as a performance dietitian for the 2019 NBA champion Toronto Raptors. She's a graduate of McMaster University with a degree in biochemistry, and Jennifer was awarded a Master of Science in Human Biology and Nutritional Sciences from the University of Guelph, where she specialized in nutrition, exercise, and metabolism. Over her 18-year career, Jen has provided nutritional support to Olympic and professional athletes in over 20 sports and has served as team dietitian for Athletics Canada, Swimming Canada, Gymnastics Canada, and the Toronto Maple Leafs. Most recently, Jen's research interests led her to undertake a PhD in sports science at Nottingham Trent University, where she is studying the impact of low energy availability on sport performance under the guidance of Professor Christy Elliott Sale. Outside of her work, Jennifer is an avid sports enthusiast and a proud mother of two active boys. Although Jen has a wide range of expertise, our discussion today will focus on menstruation and performance, low energy availability and nutrition as it pertains to female endurance athletes. Hey, I'm E.K. Lipberry, content strategist at Fast Talk Laboratories. We're so excited that you're here to listen to our very first episode of the Fast Talk Femme podcast a new podcast series that's all about the female endurance athlete. Here at Fast Talk Labs, we pride ourselves on being the pioneers of information and education in the endurance sports world for both athletes and coaches. So if you like what you hear today, check out more at fasttalklabs.com. Jen, welcome to Fast Talk Femme, and thank you for joining us today. Thanks so much for having me. I really appreciate the opportunity to be here. I wear a lot of hats, as I think you got a, an awareness of in my intro. So, you know, on the one hand, I work in the NBA with these sort of, as I call them, these giant 20-year-old man children. <laughs> we just got back from a training camp providing them with support. But, you know, aside from that, I work in track and field, specifically with Canada's national team. And and uh, and I work in gymnastics where I'm, you know, helping uh, our national women's team be at their best and then, you know, these days I'm really working on my PhD as well. So delving into research on, as you mentioned, you know, the impact of low energy availability on performance. But, you know, really where I'm, what I'm interested in is that intersection point between what sort of things we can manipulate in terms of nutrition, body weight, how we approach the training process, especially with female athletes, and then how we can be assured that there's going to be a positive impact on performance. So, you know, if someone says, oh, get a little leaner so that you get faster, is that true? Is that always true? Or could you be somehow hampering your performance? You know, be on the pill, don't be on the pill. That's going to impact your performance. Is that true or is that not true? So some of those teasing out some of those finer details to allow athletes at all levels to be able to perform at their best, that's sort of what I'm quite hot to trot on these days. I really appreciate that. I think having that perspective and just all of that knowledge and that just perspective to be really integrated in your practice is so important because I think oftentimes when we're new to something, we can kind of go all in on one aspect of an issue at the expense of other parts of performance. And I, I think it's so important to maintain that perspective and that integration. You know, Jen, while we can all agree it's, it's about time that female athletes are receiving this specific research attention they deserve, it does seem that two camps have formed. On the one hand, 
We have the camp that's, that states there is currently not enough quality evidence to provide conclusive guidance to the female athletes that they should train differently based on female physiology or let training be dictated by their menstrual cycle. And the other camp seems to suggest it is possible to provide more definitive guidance based on the menstrual cycle. For example, days one through 13, you should be doing speed and power. Days 15 through 21, more sustained steady state efforts. And the remainder of the cycle dedicated to more rest, recovery, balance, skill type work. What are your thoughts on this? Well, I think maybe what we should do is take a step back and look at where those two camps might have come from in the first place and why we have those, um, let's say, differing opinions. Although I'll make the case there is some, I guess, common threads that both camps could agree on. You know, where this sort of stems from is the idea that as we experience um, a menstrual cycle, and in this case, I'm talking about one that's not influenced by either an oral contraceptive, like taking the birth control pill, or a hormone producing IUD. So those are the intrauterine devices that a person would typically have inserted in the uterus for about five years or so at a time, maybe seven years at a time, that release a small amount of a hormone, most commonly a form of progesterone in you know, really tiny sort of microscopic amounts over that period of time and, and therefore can have an impact on not just um, contraception, but also on menstrual function. Many people with that, those hormone secreting IUDs, for example, have lighter periods or no period at all. So in this case, you know, we have to acknowledge that if a person doesn't have either of those things going on and is able to use, and I'm going to use an air quotes term here, a normal, produce a normal menstrual cycle, and I air quotes that for a reason too, is that they're going to experience a series of different hormonal states over the course of their cycle. And a typical cycle might be 28 days, but of course they can vary considerably as, as any woman who is listening to this, um, who has had a period is aware that they might be shorter, they might be longer. Sometimes we miss them entirely. But essentially, we are experiencing over that cycle a spike in estrogen that occurs around the mid-cycle peak, and then a sort of a, a little bit of a dip, and then followed by a rise in both estrogen and progesterone, the two key sex hormones in the latter phase. We call that the luteal phase of the menstrual cycle. So the period up till day 14-ish when we ovulate, it's called the follicular phase. The second half is called the luteal phase. And then we have basically the bleed phase, which is technically the start of the menstrual cycle, and that is the very early follicular phase. Each of these phases has a different hormonal profile, as I already indicated. So during that sort of very early follicular phase, you've essentially flatlined your hormones. They can be very, very low, almost undetectable for a couple of days. Then you get that rise in estrogen, as I mentioned, right to the mid-cycle peak, and then that little drop, and then both of them rise towards the latter half of the cycle. So the argument goes that when we experience those hormonal fluxes or changes, that the body is operating differently. And if I can give you an example, there's good research to say that at that mid-cycle peak, that, that estrogen spike leads to an increase in laxity, which basically means that some of our tendons and ligaments might be a bit more flexible. And so what that can lead to sometimes is an increased risk in injury. So there is some data out there to say that women are more likely to experience, for example, an ACL tear right around the mid-cycle peak than at any other time in their menstrual cycle. So if you look at it from that lens, you say, okay, we do exist with different hormonal states. Therefore, does it make sense to say that training prescriptions might need to be 
somehow customized or periodized, that's sort of a semi-ironic term, brutal pun throughout the menstrual cycle to adjust to accommodate to or even take advantage of or capitalize on these different phases. That's sort of the paradigm. That's the theory. Does that actually pan out in what the literature says? And where we stand with this right now, I would say, is we're in the muddy middle. We don't have vast amounts of research that has really clearly told us one way or the other. And what I mean by that is, and we can talk a bit more about this in detail, but just very briefly, we've had a couple of good papers come out in the last few years that have looked at the impact of different training or or some type of exercise bout at different phases of the menstrual cycle. And the papers that I'm referring to are led by my PhD advisor, co-authored by her. Uh, her name's Dr. Kirsty Elliott-Sales. She's a professor at Manchester Metropolitan University, where I'm now studying. And she and her team have looked at huge numbers of research papers and said, okay, what do we see within that menstrual cycle? Do we see a difference in performance from that early follicular phase to that mid-cycle peak and then again in that latter luteal phase. And the answer fairly simply was, if there is an effect, it's very, very, very small and probably dissolves when we look at anything that could be really measurable in the long run. So there's little tiny differences, maybe, maybe between our endurance and our strength in that very early follicular phase. So right in those first few days of our period, many women don't feel amazing right then and there. And some research says that we might not be at our best in terms of endurance at that exact moment or strength. But the rest of the cycle, there's really no detectable difference. And the effects they literally deem to be trivial. They're incredibly small and they're not certain. So if we look at the research from that lens so far, it says it's too early to really say you should be doing this or doing that within the different phases of the cycle. Now, we can break this down a little bit more, but you know, I want to take a breath here, obviously, and you may have some follow-up questions, and, and I don't want to hog the whole time off one question. But I think that at least at the stage for our conversation that there's the biological things going on, but then there's the actual measured research outcomes. And right now, they're not totally lining up, which is why we have these two different camps. Is there any current evidence that suggests the menstrual cycle inhibits performance. And I think this is, I think you kind of answered that, but just to kind of position it a different way. Yeah. And so again, this is where it gets, you can parse this out a little bit, but based on these systematic review and meta-analyses that were published in 2020 in the journal Sports Medicine, it at least suggests that if there is any difference from one phase of the menstrual cycle to the other in terms of performance outcomes for strength or endurance, they're incredibly small and small enough to be trivial. So not enough that you can say, you know, a person's going to have a real significant competitive advantage between these two phases. Now, where it gets a little more complicated, though, is that what we don't have yet are a number of well-controlled studies that actually created some type of training difference between these two groups and then observed the impact over time. So what I mean by that is, we need more studies that say, okay, what if you and I both trained, you know, through a series of different cycles and we looked at over the span of a year, if one group did, as you said, more sports-specific training relative to this stage of their cycle at this part of their cycle, and then maybe more sports-specific training that's different at another phase of their cycle, and we measured ourselves after a year, would we then, in that prospective sort of viewpoint of things, would we then see a performance change? Those sorts of studies still need to be done. 
because the studies that we have so far tend to be looking at single bouts of activity. So in other words, if I put you on the line and I said, I want you to race a 10K today, and I'm going to have you do that in different phases of your menstrual cycle, and you're going to give your best. Those studies say that there's virtually no difference in your performance outcome, regardless of the stage of your menstrual cycle, or if there's an effect, it's very, very small. But what we don't yet have, like I said, is enough training studies that say, okay, on a single day, it probably doesn't matter. But what if I had you train this way for two straight years? Would we be able to see a difference? Would those tiny trivial differences start to add up and compound over time in some type of, you know, exponential fashion or some type of growth-based fashion? I would say at this point, it's too soon to tell. But that is, again, that's the sort of hypothesis that's thrown out there with the let's train according to our menstrual cycle phase group, as they're saying, based on what we know about the way the body works, if we do this long enough, we'll see a benefit. But nobody has proven that to this point. I would imagine it's also tricky because hormone levels vary significantly among individuals. Yeah, I want to jump in right there because in the interest of not talking for too long in the first question, what was in the back of my mind, and I can hear you know, Kirsty speaking, I've heard her um, do a number of presentations on this topic. And the thing that she points out almost always in one of her first slides in any talk is what exactly is a normal female or a normal female cycle? Like, let's take a pause there right off the bat, because you have women who are you know, maybe girls who may be premenstrual that haven't reached a stage of having their first period yet. We might have women who are not on oral contraceptives, we might have women who are on oral contraceptives, we might have women who are using those IUDs that I mentioned or other hormonal methods of birth control. We may have women who are amenorrheic for different reasons, which means they don't have a period. And then we have women who are perimenopausal and postmenopausal. And if we're not including all of those women in this discussion, then we're really narrowing this to a very small group of women. In fact, in some studies, the majority of women participating in sport are using some type of hormone-producing contraceptive. So in those cases, the hormonal profile is completely different. They're basically flatlined throughout the menstrual cycle. So when we say you should, you know, train towards your menstrual cycle, well, that assumes that that person is having a regular period, their body produces hormones normally, and they're not using any of these, uh, as we call them, exogenous or external hormones that I just mentioned. And that's actually not a huge percentage of the female population. It's certainly some, but to sort of imply that, you know, all women need to do this, I think is it really diminishes all of the different types of women that are out there, all the different types of hormonal profiles that are out there. I would imagine also that it would be difficult to parse out the effect of hormone suppression in more extreme sports. A sport like cycling, for example, where you're doing stage racing, a lot of women, and I mean, I I realize there's also nutritional components too that you have to consider, but it it would be really hard to parse out all of the variables with your subjects in a study as well. Well, and and also to control them all, and then depending on the length of the study, to be able to have something that's incredibly well-designed that allows you to really just isolate the impact of the hormone. You're absolutely right. That's why it's easier to do a study that says, let's line up 40 women, and have, which would actually be quite a huge study to begin with, but even 20 women, and let's have them run 10K all out or cycle you know, 30K all out or do some type of interval type of workout where we try to get them very tired and then we do a sprint at the end. There's lots of different study designs out there, but there's a word out there that we often use, which the term is called ecological validity. And that is to say, you put somebody in a research environment, is that the same as what would be an actual race or competitive environment? So if I put someone, you know, in a a lab and I say, 
run as fast as you can until you're exhausted. Well, there's no running race that run, is run until you're exhausted. Like that's that doesn't exist. You may become exhausted because you weren't prepared for the race, but there is no event that is run until you drop. Although some ultra endurance athletes might argue otherwise, but but basically that's not that's not a sport that we award medals for. So to try and design a study that says let's mimic real competition is breathtakingly difficult. It's been done. The Australian Institute of Sport every so often uh, has managed to pull off these every year or so, actually, these incredibly beautiful studies using race walkers and looking at different types of diets like keto diets and higher carb diets and, and periodized carb diets. And they can demonstrate the impact on performance after three weeks of an incredibly controlled training camp where they control all the diet, they measure all the hormones, all the performance outcomes, and they even get race money from World Athletics and rankings to make it worth their while to race as hard as they they genuinely can. So it's been done that you get a perfect, you know, as well-designed as possible training study and then racing study, but it's incredibly difficult. So as you said, if you're trying to layer that in and say, what effect does the hormone status of that female have on this and really get a clear outcome? Um, most of the studies in the meta-analyses that have been done have been deemed to be low quality as a result of that, because they're not really reflecting true training or true racing situations. They're kind of lab-based with a bunch of university students, and that creates a lot of noise. So Jen, stepping back and this concept of training toward your menstrual cycle, one thing that occurs to me is, is, do you think if we do train in this model that we risk ignoring critical training principles, such as adequate load of a specific intensity, and ultimately missing out on valuable training adaptations? Or do you think if we were to go down this path, that that model of training dictated by the menstrual cycle could be reconciled with training principles? Okay, well, this then brings up, I think another, just I'll take sort of a sidestep and then lean into that question, is that where I said that there is some common ground between these two camps is that the sense increasingly is we need to treat each female differently or individually. We need to recognize individual differences in how the menstrual cycle affects each athlete. And that's, of course, each menstruating athlete, you know, again, acknowledging that we have menopausal and perimenopausal athletes that I'm sure that are listening to this and we want to give them the space to be part of this conversation as well. So we want to acknowledge that some women are going to be absolutely debilitated in the first few days of their period. There's a term out there called dysmenorrhea, which is to say that you have, you know, really, really difficult menstrual periods or menorrhagia, which means incredibly heavy menstrual periods. So no one here, I want to be clear, is saying your period has no effect on training or performance. What you experience is what you experience. And if you notice on a regular basis that, you know what, I feel, and, and and tracking your period and paying attention, I think is a worthwhile endeavor for females. And to say, I do notice that I feel like wickedly strong, you know, right around my mid-cycle peak. That's a really awesome phase for me. And uh, once I get to week three and I'm starting to head into that sort of PMS-y phase, that I just start to feel bloated and heavy and I just don't like how that feels. I think having that discussion with a coach or a training group and saying, you know, what what are we going to do to adapt to that? I think is absolutely fair and is a realistic way to adapt training. And even those who say the research doesn't say that you should adapt the training for performance outcomes based on menstrual cycle phase, they will still say very clearly it is absolutely okay to make individual adjustments to training based on the experience of 
that individual. You know, so if we take that then and say, do we ignore it? No, we don't. We don't have to ignore it. Let's talk about it. I think that's great. And let's adjust training appropriately. But equally, we have to be prepared for the fact, and I know you and I were emailing about this, Julia, a little bit in advance, that your quote-unquote Olympics, whatever that might be for you, might happen on day three of your menstrual cycle or day 27 of your menstrual cycle, and they may not be your best days. So how are we going to make sure that you're prepared and feel your best and maybe not put ourselves in a mental space and say, oh, this is the wrong day of my cycle. So, you know, I'm going to kind of suck today. Like, well, that that might not be the mindset that we want to create in a person while still, like I said, acknowledging that on the lo- in the long term, it's okay to start giving ourselves that space to adjust our training as we see fit. But but we, we want to also be ready to compete when it's time to compete. And, and we may not always have our best day, not just for menstrual cycle reasons, but weather can be bad, might have a bit of a sniffle. Lots of things can go on. We could sleep poorly the night before. And we want to be adaptable in those situations and be able to give our best. I'm glad you addressed that, Jen, because I think as, a, as an athlete and having coached many athletes, confidence is obviously it just has such a huge effect on performance, positively or negatively. And it is really important for athletes to be adaptable to many different factors that that might come their way on race day. And if I can jump in and throw one more thought in there is you're absolutely right. And, you know, it's interesting because that same research group that I've mentioned published a similar paper on the impact of oral contraceptives on exercise performance. And they did demonstrate that there is possibly a very small negative impact of taking the pill, oral contraceptive pills on performance, at least, like I said, more in single bout types of activities. And when you read that, it would be really easy to say, well, shoot, well, then I better not put myself or any athlete I work with on the pill if it somehow suppresses performance outcomes. But we have to look when you talk about confidence at the whole athlete and the whole picture of training and and competing. And I've had athletes who have just crippling cramps and first few days of their periods, which cost them a couple training days every month. And, you know, heaven forbid they have to compete at their major event of the year or their A races or whatever, while they're in that really debilitating stage. And I I can think of Olympians I've worked with where they're like, I think my cycle is going to hit right around the time of the games. Like I'm going to be a mess. Those might be cases where we say, you know what, the pill is a huge advantage for you. You know, and if there is perhaps some like infinitesimally small negative impact on, on some type of performance or training adaptation, the benefit of knowing that you can go into your race feeling good and that you're not going to be having a, a severe amount of cramps or, you know, dealing with, with severe bleed that day, that's really important. So we can't miss the forest for the trees, right? Like we have to know that we're able to take the best, you know, measured approach, sit down with ourselves, our coaches, our medical team, if we have one, and, and as a group say, you know what, I think this gives you the best odds of success. If we put, this is our whole picture together, this is where you're going to feel best. And and that's going to be different for me than it is for the person standing beside me on the start line. And that's that's when we're doing things well, when we listen to the individual and their needs. I completely agree with that. Jen, we haven't spoken yet about low energy availability and how that might affect the hormone profile of women and their performance. Can you touch on that? Well, yeah, yeah it, I'm glad you asked because it was occurring to me as I was speaking here is that, you know, everything that I've been saying, I did turn to use the uh, term amenorrheic a few minutes ago, but most of what I've been saying so far has been with the understanding that the hormonal profile has been 
within a woman's quote unquote normal range, or at least when they're healthy and well, and, you know, all of the hormones are being produced in the way that, that we would expect the body to be able to produce them. But there's sort of a separate arm to this, I think is worth paying some attention to. And that's what happens when hormones are suppressed and they're suppressed, not because of taking the pill or even say a biological condition where say, for example, something called polycystic ovarian syndrome or PCOS, where there's some changes in some of those hormone levels in the body because of cysts that may exist on the ovaries. Let's put those sorts of conditions aside right now or those you know, sort of hormonal states and talk about what happens if you're not producing the right bodily normal hormones. The word we use again is endogenous. We talk about hormones that happen inside of us versus exogenous, which are hormones we take. If our endogenous hormones aren't being produced normally, that we do know has a significant impact on exercise, performance, health, and training adaptations. And that gets into this whole concept of this condition called REDS or relative energy deficiency in sport. And basically for those who are are new or, or want to be refreshed on this topic, essentially energy availability is defined as the amount of calories your body has to perform all of its basic physiological functions after accounting for the calories burned during training or racing or sport. And so if a person has good energy availability, it means that they've got enough calories from food to support whatever training they're doing that day, and their body can take care of all of its internal business in the ways that it needs to. It can grow, it can develop, it can regenerate, heart can beat, brain can think, kidneys can do their things, toenails can grow, all the good stuff happens. And within that, normal hormones are able to be produced. When an athlete is in a state of low energy availability, it means that they no longer have enough energy available for all of those great physiological processes I just mentioned, because so much of their calories are going to training and there's not enough calories eaten to do all that other stuff. And the analogy or the little story I often tell athletes to help them understand what happens when a person is in a low energy availability state. And, and as an aside, women seem to be more profoundly affected by this state than men, but both can be affected by having this state of LEA, as we call it, or low energy availability, which if it persists over time, leads to this medical condition called REDS. And REDS is basically where your health and or your performance have been affected by chronic ongoing low energy availability. The way that I try and help people understand this is that if you imagine that you have a house and depending where you're living, when you're listening to this podcast, you may be in a very expensive part of the world or one where real estate's pretty affordable. So you may laugh at my numbers that I'm using and that's okay. I'm cool with that. But let's just say for argument's sake that your, your home costs $2,500 a month to be able to keep it up for a month. And that means to cover all your expenses. And you said, okay, for $2,500 a month, I can pay my rent or my mortgage. I can pay my bills. I can put food in my fridge. I can do all the upkeep. I can keep the lawn looking nice. You know, if something breaks, I can fix it. I can save some money even to do things even better in the long run and, you know, refurbish or redecorate. Awesome. House is happy. If I take that $2,500 a month and I say, this month, I'm only giving you $1,500. What's going to happen to your house? Well, in the first month, you might go, oh, well, you know what? I got to cut some corners. You know, I'm going to have to turn the heat up or down or the air conditioning up or down, or, you know, I'm, I'm not, I'm certainly not going to do any upgrades. I'm not going to make the house look any better this month. I'm not going to paint anything or do any gardening. You know, I'm going to have to try and basically just let the house get by on the bare minimum and see if I can coast. Well, you might get by for a month, but if I ask you to do that for six months or a year, what starts happening? 
And you can imagine that house is going to start to look pretty crummy and pretty broken down. So after a long period of time in that state, not only is the house going to look pretty rough, but if something breaks, you're certainly not going to have the money or the resources to fix it. And you are definitely not going to be investing money to make the house better. You're not going to go and put a new addition on or anything like that. There's no savings for that. You're not going to go and redo the bathroom. That's basically a metaphor and analogy for what happens in your body in a low energy availability state that goes on for a month, six months, a year. You start to change and no longer to be able to be the athlete that you wanted to be. The performance is affected and the vehicle with which that is impaired is because of the hormonal changes. So when we're in a low energy availability state, our body doesn't produce those sex hormones and particularly estrogen in the way that it would normally. And then we see this downstream impact on training adaptations, on health, immune system function in particular, we're getting sick more often, stress fractures, bony stress injuries, and other injuries, not to mention mood, you know, not to mention iron status, gut health. It goes on and on and on. All the systems in the body are affected. So on the one hand, while we're saying at the beginning of this discussion that the research says that hormones within the menstrual cycle don't necessarily impact performance, I can tell you if you're not menstruating and you did before, and there's no other medical reason for it other than you've cut back your diet, you've increased your training load, and you haven't adjusted to keep the two matching and your period stops, that is a massive warning sign and that will impact performance. Not only maybe because of how your body actually can tolerate training, but also because you might be too injured or sick or not have the desire to be out there and the same attitude towards training because you're just so darn fatigued. And we see this with female athletes a lot. (laughs) Male athletes as well. I don't want to ignore them in this, but I want to make sure that that conversation has been had here, that uh, in that respect, hormones and performance very much go hand in hand. Jen, what are some of the strategies that you recommend for female athletes to mitigate the less favorable effects of the menstrual cycle via nutritional strategies, for example? So let's start with that. If you end up with a person who's not menstruating or their periods have been like become less frequent or something's gone wrong based on that REDS principle, without question, the first strategy is to make sure you're eating enough. So this is not somebody who's having bad cramps. This is somebody whose period is stopping or becoming less frequent we would work with them to make sure that they're meeting their calorie needs so that their body has the fuel to be able to perform at their best so that the bones can be healthy, the entire body system can be healthy. If though someone says, no, 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 I'm having regular periods. In fact, Jen, I'm having too much period. (laughs) Like it's just really severe and it's really problematic. Like I said, sometimes we want to not, like there's some nutrition things we can talk about, but I want to be very clear. Sometimes we really do want to bring in an expert. And I mean by that, like an OBGYN who can have a discussion with you about whether you would be a better candidate for something like an IUD, one of those hormonal secreting IUDs that I mentioned, or an oral contraceptive pill or whatever the case may be. So let's not try to be heroes here and fight a battle that's just causing us tremendous distress. Mm -hmm. But within that bandwidth of my period is annoying, but I can manage it and I'm having normal periods, then we can kind of play around with some things. And, you know, yes, there's some supplements out there with not a lot of good evidence behind them, but we can play around with things like evening primrose oil, you know, whether these are helpful or not. The research is, I would say, pretty, pretty low quality. 
We can look at things like magnesium, for example. Sometimes some women argue that, um, you know, some of the cravings they experience during their menstrual cycle is a magnesium deficiency, that, that heavy chocolate craving women experience that if they took more magnesium, that might diminish. Be careful too much magnesium. It's got a laxative effect and, you know, you might really get a, a wild ride the next morning when you go up for your long training session. So we want to ease into that. But one other interesting nutrition strategy I think it's important to be aware of is that the research says that when you get to that latter phase of that luteal phase, the second half of the cycle between days 14 and 28, hunger goes up, appetite goes up. And a lot of women notice, they're like, oh man, I just can't eat enough. Like I'm starving all the time in this this particular week. And there's at least been a couple of papers out there that say that if you're looking at trying to manage your weight and not go into reds, allowing yourself some wiggle room in that third week to be able to eat a little bit more, that's when the cravings tend to be highest, to actually build that into your plan and not be mad at yourself because you had a craving and you ate some chocolate or whatever, is actually say, you know what, this is the week where that happens and that's cool. And then the other times when I'm feeling a little bit different, I'm going to adjust my eating and be cool with that. So I hope that helps. I mean, that's definitely covering three very different situations. And I hope that uh, if you have any follow-up questions, I'm all ears because I know that was definitely a lot of information there. But hopefully that covers lots of different listeners here and, and gives them all a little bit of something to think about. That definitely helps. We've talked a lot of scientific jargon. And <laughs> at this point, I want to ask you a more general question. Sure. Should women train differently than men? Or is that too big of a question for you to address? <laughs> no, I can. To a certain extent, maybe. Okay, I'm sorry to get on the fence. But I'm going to lean on one of my dear friends and colleagues. His name's Trent Stellingworth. And he's um, an expert exercise physiologist with a great deal of nutrition knowledge who works up in Canada, based out of Victoria, BC. And now he's he's gone from being a true physiologist to a coach. So he's really seen you know, all ends of this. And he just published sort of a paper that was called, and I want to make sure I get the title right, Patients During Puberty. And it was talking about, and this is speaking more to runners, but endurance female athletes in their teens and how we need to reassess this viewpoint of like, let's push young females when their bodies are transitioning from that sort of like male physique into it, like a fully grown female there's often this really difficult sort of psychological situation women go through where it's like, whoa, all of a sudden I got boobs and a butt. And, and this leads to a lot of women starting to restrict. They get into some real big nutrition trouble. I see a ton of that in my practice. Trent's argument he makes in this paper is we might actually want, at least in running now, I recognize your, your listeners or a lot of them are cyclists and it is a little different. At least in a, in a weight-bearing sport like running where stress fracture risk is so high, that we might want to actually train women based on minutes rather than miles in those critical years. So in other words, if we're planning a 70 minute workout for a guy, that it should also be a 70 minute workout for a girl. Whereas her speed, if you're covering the same distance, might actually be 80 or 85 or 90 minutes. That that extra load is only putting her at increased risk of reds, of stress fractures, um, of too much demand on the body at that particularly critical time. And that 70 minutes in and of itself is enough. So again, a little different in the cycling world, but I think that what it is saying is that we need to really pay attention and understand that women are different than men. And that even if it isn't for, there are physical differences, no question, but even if it is the social, societal attitudes 
the social media use that has women thinking and feeling certain ways about their bodies, that has to be acknowledged. And we want to make sure we create training spaces that allow women to feel uplifted, positive, you know, that their body is something that's an ally to them, not something that they're fighting against. So maybe that's not the answer you're looking for in terms of like how much, you know, volume they should be doing or how, but, but I think at least should we approach training for women differently than men? I absolutely feel we should. Yes. Hey listeners, we hope you're enjoying this premiere episode of Fast Talk Femme. Make sure to tune back in for our next episode on January 24th when Julie and Didi chat with Dr. Dana Lees from Summit Sports Nutrition. In this episode, you'll learn how to align your nutritional needs with your training and performance so that you can achieve the goals you've set for 2023. See you then. Jen, I love that paper by Stellingworth. I work with a lot of U23 athletes and just as you said, it's so tricky. You know, they come into a sport maybe as an 11, 12-year-old and are just crushing it and then go through these changes. And it's, I think it's psychologically challenging as, as well as physically challenging. And I think just, you know, having that perspective, helping those athletes, you know, have that perspective that they'll grow into those changes is also really important. And just having those people surround those athletes I was also going to say, just kind of stepping back, I really appreciate, you know, your approach and the individuality of this decision-making and basing it on the context and the goals of the athlete. Just as you said, you know, just, you always have to weigh the different factors in that decision-making and, and also just really appreciate this opportunity to empower the athletes with those tools and that knowledge to be really proactive. So if they are going into a competition at a, a certain time of, of that menstrual cycle that may not be like, quote, favorable, that they really know how to deal with that and they can go in with confidence and command. You and I are very much on the same page of that, that, you know, there's a great podcast, <laughs> funny, another podcast, I shouldn't plug someone else's podcast while I'm on a different one, but I listened to this one a few years ago about a concept called embracing the chaos. And I talked to athletes about this a lot. And it references a piano, sort of a recital or, or a performance, I should say, a concert by a, a jazz pianist named Keith Jarrett that took place in Germany in the 70s. And when Keith arrived at the venue that, you know, he was expecting this beautiful piano that was going to sound terrific. And the concert was, you know, right around the corner next day, I think it was. And he arrived and found that the piano had sticky keys and, you know, most of the black keys weren't even working. And he could have very easily walked out and said, well, this is not acceptable. This situation is, I'm too big of a of an artist to be able to play on this piano that's second rate. And I, I as I recall, it's been a while since I listened to the podcast, but he sort of looked at the, the young woman who'd done the organizing of the event and her heart was breaking seeing this. She didn't realize. And, and he looked at her and he said, oh, geez, you know, I, I have to go through this. The, the tickets have already been sold. I, I've got to show up for her and for all of the fans and the guests. And so he went and he sat down and he played and he played basically a, a spontaneous performance. And it ended up becoming, I believe, the biggest selling jazz album of all time in the 1970s. It's the Cologne concert, if I, if I recall correctly, like K-O-L-N, if you're ever looking it up. And Keith Jarrett is J-E-R-R-E-T-T, -T, if memory serves. Forgive me if I've gotten this a little bit off. But the spirit of it, I think, is the critical thing is that as athletes that I work with, get ready for their major world championships and their Olympics. We talk about this and we say, what's the critical thing he had right there? He had expertise. 
he had years of preparation. And so he was able to make that spontaneous bout of what ended up being genius, even though the situation was not suitable for genius or for some type of, you know, incredible moment of perfection, transcendence. So I often talk to the athletes about that. And I would say that a lot of this applies for them when they walk into their Olympics, their world championships, their national championships, whatever it might be. I couldn't go up in front of thousands of people on a bad piano <laughs> and make a jazz recording that would be one of the best of all times. I can assure you of that. That would not happen. I took a few piano lessons. That's it. I don't have that expertise. I haven't put in the years and years of, of expert training. But when you have, when you have done all of that work and you've had the good coaching and you've taken care of your nutrition and you've done your best throughout the entire process to listen to your body and take care of your body, you're ready. And walking in on that day of the competition, if it turns out it's day one of your period or it's raining, embrace that chaos. Know that you have put yourself in that position to be able to handle whatever comes at you. So I think, Julie, we're, we're speaking the same language in that regard, is that if we you know, create this image for women that they're less than on a certain day of their cycle, we're not giving them that space to walk in and have a transcendent moment whether for themselves or in front of fans, depending on whatever level of sport you're at. And, and I want them to be empowered to have that, no matter whether it's day one or day 14 or day 28 of their cycle. I love that story. Me too. It's so good. I've recently read a presentation by Kelly McNulty. And for our listeners, Kelly is a PhD researcher and leading expert on female physiology. And she says, I'll read this statement so I get it correct. There should be consideration to monitor potential indirect effects of changes in sex hormones rather than solely focusing on the hormones themselves. This can be achieved through real-time, consistent monitoring of psychological readiness alongside symptom mapping. Can you help us unpack the statement and provide <laughs> real-life examples of how to implement this strategy? Yeah, I, I haven't heard her say those words myself, so I'm going to have to be obviously speculating on what she meant. But I do want to point out that Kelly is the lead author on the meta-analysis that I was referring to earlier, the one in sports medicine from 2020, that looks at the effects of menstrual cycle phase on exercise performance. She collaborated with my PhD advisor, Kirstie Elliott Sale, on that paper. So I have no doubt she has a, a great deal of, of great things to say on this topic. Okay, let's let's unpack this a bit. So the first thing we want to realize is that the amount of hormone that while I've talked throughout, you know, this last 40 or 50 minutes that we've been chatting about, you know, at this stage of the cycle, you tend to see a rise in estrogen. And then here we see a rise in both estrogen and progesterone. And at this stage, it's low. The difference in those numbers, those values between two women can be vast. So I'll give you an example. We measure we do measure hormone levels in a lot of the female athletes I work with. And you might see one woman at their mid-cycle peak with estrogen levels that are somewhere in the few hundreds and other women who are well over a thousand. And so you're looking at sometimes even like tenfold differences. So that's why I think it's really important that we not go around. You can't go around and say, oh, you're supposed to have this much estrogen at this phase of the cycle. It's not how our bodies work. They're very different, literally, in the amount of hormone we each produce. So it's not fair to say we want that number. This is our target. Let's let's like aim for this. Not at all. I think what she's saying is acknowledging that you are going to have one level of hormone or, or one type of cycle. Someone beside me is going to have a different one. That in that spirit of individualization, and sort of personalization is to say, okay, what do I experience 
in a typical cycle. How long is it? Is it typically 28 days? Is it 35? Is it shorter? Is it always different? How heavy is it? When did my last six or 12 periods come? Am I tracking that? I think that's absolutely smart. We do body composition assessments on our athletes. And I want to know what phase of their cycle in because we know that women will, for example, tend to have a slightly higher body weight right before they have their period, right before the bleed phase of their period, their body weight tends to be a bit higher. And then it tends to be a little lower after those first five to seven days. That's usually the lowest weight of your cycle. If you're in a sport where you're you know, engaging in, in weight management, like you have to um, compete at a certain weight, for example, like in say certain types of rowing, or combat sports, you're going to want to know that. So you'll want to track that over a period of time. If you have differences in mood, bowel function, in how your energy is, I think it's a great idea to have a sense of that. If you do notice over time that there are actual training differences that we talked about before, maybe you notice you feel stronger, or maybe there's actually evidence. Maybe you're you're looking at your watts per kg and you notice that they're a little better you know, and that right around maybe that mid-cycle peak or a little bit after that, then let's pay great attention to that. It doesn't mean based on what we said before, we're not doing this to get this in your head that says, well, now is it going to be a bad day, but rather to say, okay, now I, I understand myself. And that's when we can, you know, going back to these two camps, I think both would agree that that's time and energy well spent to sit down with your coach and your team then and say, okay, I'm going to capitalize on this on these days and I'm going to adjust on these days. And that's me being the best version of me. So I think that's what Kelly's getting at is, is really good you know, data management and monitoring. If this is your thing, is time well spent for a female athlete, getting to know their cycle and getting to know their body, which I think for, for many women, they've just kind of ignored. And you know, it's just like those couple of jokes that you make and, and off you go. But if we can really start to, to dial it in at the highest levels, then we can potentially glean some really useful information that potentially could be an advantage to us over time. Are there particular apps that you recommend for athletes and coaches to use for monitoring the, the symptoms? You honestly don't even have to. Like there's these, you know, pen and paper <laughs> works absolutely fine. You know, I, I've got a lot of athletes that just like, you know, put a little note in their phone, like on their calendar or using their notes on their phone. They journal it like in their training log, they'll throw it in there. You know, people are using whatever they might use training peaks or whatever. Sometimes they'll make little notes in there. So there are these like sophisticated ones out there that say, you know, you can track your periods and so on. Why I'm sort of a bit cautious about those is because, because some of them are starting to give a bit of training advice based on where your cycle is. And I'd be cautious about interpreting that. Like if it's, if it's, feeding back information, then I probably would view that through a lens of caution. I, I wouldn't say don't use it, but I would say just, you know, listen to your coach first before you listen to an app. And, and it's absolutely okay to use a low tech version of tracking. That's fine. You know, I think no matter if we're talking about nutrition or training, you know, it always goes back to just taking time, investing to learn what works best for you individually. And I think so often we just want the quick fix and we want to be told in absolutes, but it's always best to take that time and just figure out those strategies that work best for you in terms of, like I said, nutrition, training, and in this case, you know, understanding yourself and your menstrual cycle and how you respond to it. And I'm, I'm thrilled to be living in this time right now. You know, the, that concept I used before, that term called REDS, was first coined in 2014. Before that, I know as practitioners, we were all kind of aware of this thing that happened to athletes, but we didn't have a name for it. It, it did, I want to be fair, it was born 
out of the term female athlete triad, but that sense of this sort of whole body impact. Like I was like, man, all these strange things seem to happen. They seem to have low iron and gut issues and blah, blah, blah. And I swear I've seen it in men before. And, you know, so to think of where we've come in less than a decade and how limited the research was or has been on female athletes. And now there's so much attention in this field. And I meet so many great young researchers, both male and female, who are studying this area now with with a lot of passion. Um, So I think in a few years, if we have the same conversation, we're going to see that there's just a wealth more information out there that we can talk about. So, you know, I hope you have me back then and we can can talk about what's new in this area. (laughs) Yeah, it's pretty neat to see the momentum that is building behind this this movement and conversation, really neat. Agreed. One last question for you. I'm a big fan of Dr. James Morton. And for our <laughs> listeners, he's a PhD specializing in exercise metabolism and nutrition and former performance nutritionist for Team Sky. And he presents compelling evidence that fasted training or training on low carbohydrates is effective in triggering PGC1-alpha, which is a protein that is a key regulator of mitochondrial biogenesis. However, some experts suggest that females should not do fasted or carb-restricted training. But in this case, do you think they're missing out on the stimulating effects of PGC1-alpha and its influence on endurance training adaptations? And then, Jen, before you answer that, could you explain to our listeners the significance of PGC1-alpha on training performance? Well, first thing uh, I want to say that we're both we're both fans. Um, <laughs> I've had the opportunity to be a co-author on a, a paper about female athletes and sort of substrate metabolism, which means like carbohydrate and protein metabolism, along with Dan Moore and James Morton. We published a paper, I think it was a year or two ago anyway, and I think I contributed about three sentences to that <laughs> paper because the two of them, their level of genius, Dan Moore is a researcher out of U of T. They're both just so profoundly skilled in this area, knowledgeable. So it was it was a joy to be able to work with them. And I've, I've gotten to know James over the years on and off um, at conferences and so on. Basically, so mitochondrial biogenesis, love that term. What we're essentially saying is if you're an endurance athlete, you have mitochondria, we all have mitochondria. They are the factories, if you want to call it that. They're the engine systems in our muscle. They are the thing that allows us to produce ATP so that our muscles go, so that we go forward. In theory, if we have more mitochondria, that means we have more factories to be able to produce the product we want, which is that ATP, that adenosine triphosphate, that's what stimulates the muscle contraction, the movement forward, the drive to be able to participate in whatever sport that we want to participate in cycling, running, swimming, whatever. So if we are trying to create some type of adaptation that goes beyond just like, you know, go out and train hard, train smart, there is this argument out there that if we can manipulate through diet, the stimulus which in this case is PGC1-alpha, for this mitochondrial biogenesis, the turning on of building new mitochondria, that we can potentially improve performance because we're it's almost like we're giving ourselves a training benefit without training. We're stimulating the production of mitochondria while we're resting. And so that sounds really exciting, right? And I remember the first papers coming out on this and I was like, whoa, so we're going to talk to athletes about not eating before training on purpose, which goes against everything as a dietitian we've ever tried to do. And then we're going to see if it makes them better. I remember, I think the first paper I, I that really stuck with me was one on um, triathlon training. And it suggested some performance benefits to doing fasted training 
based on this concept. And this led to these, these concepts called train low, which is that you do training periods in a low energy availability state. Now that's different than the low energy availability we were talking about before, where it's not on an ongoing basis. It just means you wake up one morning and you don't eat breakfast and you go do a, you know, two hour bike ride, slow, easy pace. And you're in that case, hopefully stimulating some new mitochondria. So that's been sort of like the early days discussion where it stands right now, in my opinion, and, and people might have differing opinions than me, and that's fine. In my interpretation, we're not at a point that we can clearly say for whom this benefits or if it benefits all athletes. It certainly I've yet seen anything convincing to say that it benefits athletes in say stop and go sports, like a soccer player or a basketball player. I've seen nothing convincing to say that it's enhancing their endurance. If it enhances endurance in anybody in a measurable way in competition, you remember ecological validity, we talked about that a while ago, in a way that actually leads to getting the finish line faster, it would probably be in the most endurance, longest endurance sports, rather than say, you know, a, a short 400 meter sprint or something like that. So, you know, a stage cycling event, maybe this would provide, and that's what James is great at working with cycling teams. It might. Here's the risk. Remember that whole thing I talked about with the house and the reds and all that stuff? Well, when we take, I told you females are more sensitive to the impacts of low energy availability. And when you are doing not just fasted training, but training with poor carbohydrate availability, which means you're intentionally or unintentionally didn't eat any carbs or not enough before you trained because you're restricting or you're trying to do fasted training, either or your sensitivity to starting to show signs of REDS or low energy availability, your body will become more impacted by anything that has you in that REDS-like state. In other words, you're more susceptible to becoming a REDS case study if you're training on a regular basis in a fasted or low carbohydrate availability state. So if we know females are more sensitive to the impact of low energy availability, and we know that they feel pressure to control weight and undereat, is it wise, and we're not sure if it positively impacts their endurance performance, is that a good logical training method for that female when it might be putting them more at risk for the signs and symptoms of REDS? For me, it's not worth it. I prefer my athletes to train with fuel in their belly. It's just not worth it. Having said that, if somebody, again, I work a lot with runners, if they say, I'm going to go out and do a 30-minute shakeout run in a fasted state, be my guest. That's okay when they're running twice a day. But if they say, am I going to intentionally do two-hour rides or 90-minute workouts? And certainly anything at a high intensity where you want to try and actually be at your best, the research shows pretty unequivocally you will perform better if you're fueled. Mm -hmm. So for me, fueling trumps all. And that slight, slight, infinitesimally small benefit you might get from a fasted training, I don't know, leave that to the very, very edge of the sport, the people who are trying to break the world records. And we have a team of sports scientists behind them who can monitor hormones and everything else. But I think for the day-to-day -day athlete, I've spent more time cleaning up issues with females who've convinced themselves that they need to train fasted and have pushed themselves not just into reds, but disordered eating and eating disorders. For me, not worth it. That makes sense, Jen. And I very much appreciate your experience in the realities of putting these strategies into practice and the importance of considering context and relevancy. In thinking about our conversation today, the one thing that really stands out to me is the importance of the individualized approach. So with that in mind, what about this scenario? You have an endurance athlete who historically has had a healthy relationship with food and appropriate energy availability. 
And this athlete works with someone like yourself who is well-educated to help guide them in strategically implementing low-carb plus protein intake or fasting around appropriate training sessions. For the endurance athlete, mitochondrial density is a key component of improved performance in that more mitochondria the athlete has, the more capacity they have to oxidize fuels aerobically with less need to process lactate buildup, which ultimately results in a shift to the right of the lactate curve. So do you think in this scenario, low carb plus protein intake or fasted training would be advisable? Does benefit outweigh potential risk? No, that's a fair way to put it is to say, you know, if we have all our ducks in a row, so to speak, is this still a worthwhile pursuit to try and enhance endurance performance? And I would say based on the scenario you presented there, um, which is to say that a, a healthy athlete, a well athlete, and I'll add actually a true endurance athlete, you know, and, and what I mean by that is that for some athletes, the need to optimize aerobic capacity isn't there because of the, the sport that they engage in. You know, if we're talking about what I would consider to be true endurance athletes who are doing aerobically driven sports, so let's say a long-distance cyclist, let's say someone who's doing, well, certainly like tour cycling, that's probably the best example of where low-carbohydrate availability training has been put into place. And then other runners and triathletes who are open water swimming marathon and so on. And then certainly our ultra folks as well, we want to acknowledge too. When we get into those sort of extra long events that are going, you know, hours and longer, and we have an athlete where their sort of psychological state and their fueling state has been good and they're prepared for this. And, and in some ways they're almost mature enough too. I, I want to highlight that. I wouldn't recommend not fueling properly for a, a, an athlete who's in the junior levels. But if you have the right athlete, the right stage of their career, then yes, this could be a performance advantage. Now you've heard, I've just listed like six or seven caveats. So, but if you have that, if you, if you feel you are one of those athletes and, and all is well, then, you know, what it really does come down to is there's sort of two options. You can either do fasted workouts and that might be fasted with caffeine, let's say. So a cup of coffee and then you go out for a ride or you might do in the case of if you're fasting overnight, you might say do a workout in the evening, have a high protein, low carb dinner, wake up the next morning and either do a little bit of protein before your workout, or you might do again, just sort of um, fasted or fasted plus caffeine. And then you do an endurance based activity. So something fairly long in those situations. Yeah. We might get a shift over time to an increase in, in mitochondrial density. We might get that uptick in being able to hit enhance aerobic capacity. So if that's the case, then you can plug that in. I do want to highlight that shouldn't be every workout we would strategically pick that and it would be one or two workouts a week. Generally speaking, they tend to be, we tend to precede the longer workouts as opposed to something that say a higher intensity where we would want to have that glucose on board to be able to push the intensity. So, you know, when I've done this, I have, which I have, you know, I, I know I sort of said it's often not super useful for all athletes, but definitely had my share of athletes that we've done some um, train low strategies. Then, like I said, we map out the training block and we we look at different days of the week and we say, here's a good opportunity. Here's a good opportunity. Here's a good opportunity. Realize these are slow effects. They take time. So you'd want to look at a multi-month training cycle to plug these in and get any kind of benefit, 12 or 16 week training cycles. And we'd, we'd pick them all out and adopt our train low strategy. So yeah, it absolutely can work in the right scenario. Fair point. 
And do you think, I mean, I would guess there's a better time of year than another time of year to do this? Yeah, I would say so. Um, and funny you say that I, I'm just doing a lot of intakes with athletes I work with right now. And we're doing this exact periodization where we look at the season in blocks and say, okay, well, right now is the time when we'd want this. And right now is there later on is the time we'd want that. So generally we would want to do this at times where we're doing a lot of our, let's call it long, slow, steady work, our quote unquote aerobic work. So lower zone work. So, you know, depending on the zones that you're operating in, we wouldn't want to precede this through a lot of zone five work, for example. So if we are imagining for a lot of athletes, that might be something we do in our base season. You could still do it at other times of the year. But I think the thing I would highlight is you have to ask yourself, what do I want to get out of this workout? And if the answer is I have to push the intensity high, and if you're doing that a lot and you know recovery is going to be very difficult, then this is not the best time to do it. You want to implement it at times when the intensity of those workouts is going to be a bit lower and we're going to be able to have ample time to recover afterwards. So, you know, that's going to be different times of year for different athletes. For a lot of them, it's sort of in that base and transition phase and then that they would use it, their, their train low strategy. And then once they get into their heavy speed work or shorter work or power work, we would use it a little less often. Again, we could still use it, but probably a little less frequently. I would imagine as a dietitian and nutritionist, it's tricky managing and juggling your training adaptations, your recovery, and also looking after the health of the immune system. Mm -hmm. Oh, you're, yeah, you're thinking of all the angles you're thinking about. And then maybe you're adding in travel, which of course, in the immune system overlays with that, because when we cross time zones, we're at risk of greater risk of getting sick. So layering all of this in and trying to say, okay, where's our great times to induce some type of training adaptation? Where's our times where we want to be gentler on ourselves and make sure that we're really well nourished, we're really well rested, that we're not overthinking the systems. Supplements, when do they layer into that? Like I said, when do we make sure that we're really just focusing on the finer details of competition, travel, or other little details around our life. And by the way, a lot of people listening here will also have things like jobs <laughs> and other parts of their lives that also have to be considered. They might have kids, they might be trying to layer all of this into real life. So I think that speaks to the idea of individualization, customization, and experimentation is that, you know, I love looking at these things through three and four year cycles and being able to say, okay, we're going to play around this year with this. This is a bit of a higher risk intervention. Do you feel ready to try that? Awesome. Where can we plug it in? Hey, you know, here's where we can go safe and stable or safe and stable with one small adjustment that won't, we think, cause any real issues. And we build and every year we get a little bit better. I think of this as being exciting. I think of this as being fun. It's part of the dynamics of helping an athlete to be their best. So it's challenging, but not in a burdensome way. I see it as, as a way that my job, I think is one of the best jobs you could have. I think it's, it's a, it's an interplay between science, a little bit of alchemy and then sort of the art of food itself. So I, I'm fortunate to be able to have this kind of fun with athletes. Thanks so much for that, Jen. And I just really appreciate what you say about it is an evolution. And, you know, you spoke about the younger athlete and this really isn't a thing for the younger athlete. You know, it's something you, you keep adding those layers and that sophistication in slowly, but really appreciate your clarification. Super helpful. Today's episode of Fast Talk is brought to you by Alter Exploration. Created by me, Fast Talk Labs co-founder Chris Case, Alter Exploration crafts challenging, transformative cycling journeys in some of the world's most stunning destinations. Alter Exploration. What we do is all in our name. First, 
Our journeys are meant to be challenging. You'll alter your character, confidence, and resiliency in small but significant ways. Alter. Second, our trips are intended to be all-terrain tours on alternative routes. Pavement, gravel, dirt, grass. Alter. Then there's exploration. Our journeys are an exploration of both the destination and yourself. Change your perception of what's possible while simultaneously experiencing a stunning landscape. Enter Alter's comfort zone by leaving your own and be altered. Learn more about my favorite adventure destinations and start dreaming at alterexploration.com. Jen, we've covered a lot of ground today. Thank you for that. What we want to do now is have you provide just a few key takeaways that you feel like could really help them in their journey as endurance athletes. Yeah, and I, I recognize that we have gone into the weeds a little bit here. I mean, I think my assumption is that, you know, you've got people who are here who are keen and, and want to, you know, if we're talking about PGC Alpha, then then I know that we've got an audience that's dialed in and wants to get into the weeds. So thank you to those who've been listening and indulging me as we've we've gone down that road a little bit. Getting it back to the surface area that is the one where actual real world happens, real living happens. And I always say, you know, we eat food, not nutrients, right? So we're real humans. We're not mouse studies. We're not cells. So getting back to that level, what do we take away for the for a female who's listening? So the first thing is periods matter in the sense that having a healthy period, let's call it a normal period, is an important indicator of health for a female athlete. So pay attention. If your period, as I mentioned before, has stopped or changed in a way that for some reason you don't think it should have because it used to be come normally and regularly and it's not because you think of say menopause or, or pregnancy or something else, have that investigated. Talk to a medical professional about that. Talk to your, your GP. If you do have a sports science team that you can lean on or a knowledgeable coach that you can has talked about this maybe before and done some education, then maybe have that conversation and, and see if you can figure out what's going on because it's, it's maybe telling you something. So periods matter. Do periods impact performance? The answer is at least in one-off events, if they do, it's so small that at this point, the research says for all practical purposes, let's call it a no, that it's trivial enough that it could probably be overcome by other things like good nutrition, good rest, belief in yourself, and so on. So let's not overthink the stage of your cycle and performance, at least on the day of a critical event, a race top event of your year, as I mentioned. So let's not overly concern ourselves with that, at least based on current research. Having said that, if there is some evidence that the pill perhaps negatively impacts performance, that's something we do want to keep paying attention to. But the overall benefit of finding a method of contraception that works for you or of managing hormones and symptoms that works for you is really important. So if you feel better on the pill, even if it maybe isn't the best, best thing based on the evidence for performance out there, then the pill is the right option for you. And if you feel better with that IUD because it controls all those cramps, then let's explore that IUD. Okay, so I think those are some really important takeaways. Beyond that, we want to empower women to be advocates for and to be comfortable talking about their bodies and understanding their bodies and recognizing that you have your own unique state that you're in. And again, I want to acknowledge there's probably lots of women listening here who are in a menopausal state or are not having periods for different reasons. But for those who are, having some data on your periods is wise. Having an understanding of how your period impacts you is wise. Even if the research says that on 
the whole, we may, may not be able to program for you just yet, but you can program for you. And that's where there's good consensus that individual approaches to managing menstrual function and health are time well spent. But at the end of the day, we want women to feel like they're the ones who are in the driver's seat. And this to me today is about the idea that we want to pay attention to this, but we don't want periods to be the thing that uh, makes us sort of self-determines whether we think we're going to have success or not. We need more research. So more to come. But at the end of the day, I hope that this has at least given you a sense of where we are in the evidence, the research, the evolving area of understanding female physiology today. It's a fascinating area. Like I said, let's talk more in a couple of years. Hopefully my own PhD research will contribute to this area a little bit. But I think at this point, that's that's where we stand. And I look forward to talking more about this someday down the road. Thank you, Jen. You covered that brilliantly. Appreciate it. Thank you. If you were to give an aspiring female endurance athlete one piece of advice, what would it be? Fuel yourself well, without question. Have that understanding that your career can be long. It's not a race to the finish line when you're 17. We have so many women are in Canada, our top female endurance runners are 40, like across the board. 40 is like the new 27 in running these days for female athletes. It's phenomenal how much success women are having at a relatively older age now. So if you're 17 years old or you're 21 years old or you're just getting into endurance now, look at it from the long run. You know, I'm, there's again, terrible puns and literal and figurative use of terms here, but it's not a short-term race to the finish line. The long distance runner wins in the end. So treat your body with a lot of love and a lot of respect and let's allow it to mature and evolve and become the great athlete you can become down the road. Jen, thank you so much. I loved that final message was so good. And interestingly, we we chat with Dr. Krauss. I don't know if you know Emily Krauss. She's at Stanford. She's amazing. <laughs> she literally had the same takeaway message or the same final message. So really appreciate that perspective. Well, that I, I'll take that as a compliment then because uh, she's an expert in this field. So if we're, if we're coming to the same point together at the same time, and I know they've, they've done some really great work in trying to empower. In fact, I use some, I believe it's Stanford that she's at, uh, some of their their great uh, educational tools I use in my practice. So uh, I'll take that as a compliment if we've arrived at the same place. Very good. Thanks, Jen. Awesome. Thank you so much. Thanks for your time. Thank you. That was another episode of Fast Talk Femme. Subscribe to Fast Talk Femme wherever you prefer to find your favorite podcasts. Be sure to leave us a rating and a review. The thoughts and opinions expressed on Fast Talk Femme are those of the individual. As always, we love to hear your feedback. Get in touch via social. You can find Fast Talk Labs on Twitter and Instagram at Fast Talk Labs, where you'll also find all of our episodes. You can also check them out on the web at fasttalklabs.com. For Jennifer Sago and Julie Young, I'm Dee Dee Barry. Thanks for listening. 